A few years ago, minimalism made this huge return globally in the cities across the world as people were set ablaze with the thought of living with less. In fact, Heather and I caught the bug as we watched episode after episode of Tiny House and Tiny House Nation. Uh, it, we just found ourselves going, man, wouldn't that be great? Because there's something incredibly appealing about the thought of being forced to take all your personal belongings and fit them into a Tupperware container or a box and chucking the rest. It's like this amazing weight or sigh of relief as the worry of the stuff in this world falls away because it's gone. Now, this is not to demean. I, I don't, don't get me wrong. It's, it's incredibly stressful, I'm sure, to go through your personal belongings and evaluate specific items you've been carrying for maybe tens of years that have a deep memory, maybe a lot of intrinsic value. There could be priceless family heirlooms involved in, in this discussion, but that's, that's actually the point of the practice altogether. It's to evaluate what's really important, what's like truly priority. I, can't, I had this happen to me just a couple of days ago. I was going through my storage and I f- came across two boxes with my name on them. And I opened those boxes to find items I hadn't seen in at least two years. And I found myself exclaiming, wow, I've been wondering where this was. And then like a, sh- a tidal wave hitting the shoreline, uh, the reality of the moment hit me as well. I, I had to think, I literally haven't seen this stuff in over two years. I haven't even seemingly missed this stuff. So do I really need this stuff? And maybe you've had a moment like that yourself. When Jesus called his disciples to leave, like, to leave and follow him, to drop their nets and come after him, they had to leave immediately. They didn't get to take a coat with them. They weren't allowed to say goodbye to their family. They weren't allowed to even go to a, a relative's funeral. They had to take what was immediately on their back, whatever was on their person, and immediately follow Jesus. And Jesus did this so that he could deepen their dependency upon him and to deepen their faith in their master, Jesus. There's a couple practical reasons, too. Number one, during this time in the ancient days, robbery was rampant along roadways. And so if these disciples were traveling with a bunch of valuables, specifically during the night, they were likely to be attacked, maybe even left for dead. So Jesus does it as a protection for them, precautionary in advance. And secondly... He does it, and maybe this is the primary reason. It's because they had been trained in a certain way to trust those things of their old life. And Jesus was serving to cut ties with anything they had placed trust in in their time prior to him. So prior to him, they have to let go of the stuff and the people that they had grown comfortable in knowing and placing their trust in. I want to say this in advance. Today's sermon is not about stuff or condemning stuff. It's not that stuff is bad. In fact, it's to highlight something. What we'll see is that Jesus is generous with his people. He loves to shower his goodness and grace on his children, and he is just the greatest of that. He loves us, and he loves us richly. However, his own words were very pointed in Matthew 6. He said, no one can serve two masters. You can either serve the Lord, or you can serve stuff, but you cannot serve both. You will either love one and hate the other. You'll serve one and despise the other. It's a question of mastery. It's a question of you lording over your stuff or your stuff lording over you. If you can be trusted in the small, then you can be trusted with the lot. And I genuinely believe that Jesus wants to trust people 
with resources who were going to leverage those resources for the advance of the kingdom and the advance of his gospel. And so today, as we turn in our, our attention to Mark 8, to this next discipline that Jesus desires for us, his disciples, to carry, is we're going to examine simple living. Because I think what we're going to find today is that we have to trust Jesus a lot more and that we can live on a lot less. In Mark 8 it says this, During those days another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away now, hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciple answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough food, bread for them to, for, to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken away the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke, broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them. Also told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 people were present. After he had sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. I want to make my first point. In this miraculous show of God's abilities, his power, this miracle wasn't about want. It was about necessity. Jesus is genuinely concerned about these people's lives. There's no other place in Scripture where Jesus speaks up and says, I have compassion for these people. It's only in this one story that's covered also in Matthew. Now, throughout Scripture, from old to new, it's implied that Jesus has compassion. But this is the only place where it's recorded where he actually says it verbally. And the word compassion is splanknozimai, which means to be moved deeply in one's bowels. Ancients viewed the visceral human organs as the seat of one's emotions, where deep feelings of emotional pain are felt. Much like we'd commonly use the phrase, uh, something is gut-wrenching, or I felt that in the pit of my stomach. Same principle applies. This display of power isn't about Jesus showing off to impress people and, uh, about who he is and to get them to follow. This impressive show of power is simply about meeting their need. It is to provide substance for them in order that they would survive. Here's the beauty about this miracle. It's not even about eating. It's about being filled. Maybe, maybe even during this quarantine, you found yourself lose track of time. Maybe you find yourself not even certain of what the days are. I've sent my kids up to play video games and say, you have one hour, and I walk up three hours later, and they're in a zone just glassed over, completely immersed in, in the video game not even cognizant of anything around them. They've lost complete track of time. Maybe you found yourself in a Netflix binge, sucked completely into that, that warp, and you f wake up and you're like, I don't even know what month it is. We've all done it. The truth is, these people in this moment are so captivated, so enamored with Jesus, that for three days they either forgot to or simply chose not to eat as to not miss what he might do or say next. And because of it, in this case, if he doesn't feed them, they're going to die. Matthew 6 says that he's promised to meet every need that we will ever have. And Hebrews 13 says that he will never break a promise to us. What I sense this moment is more tangibly portraying is this. 
Jesus' own words in Matthew 4 as he comes out of being tested and fasting in the wilderness for 40 days with the, with the enemy himself. He says to the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, these people, these Gentiles, they're finding life in the words and action of Jesus. They're finding him as their primary sustenance, and they're finding out that they can, in fact, live on way less physically. They are feasting on the very person of Jesus, and everything else pales in comparison. Much like the desperate woman we witnessed last week who begged Jesus to meet her need because she trusted him alone to do it. These people are truly finding sustenance in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Third point, this wasn't about Jesus' abilities. That's not what's on trial here. That's not what's in question. It was never about his abilities. It was about the people trusting and receiving his abilities. Jesus provides abundance out of nothing. Again, that's who he is. That's what we see him do throughout Scripture. He's kind. Even the wind obeys him. He can always calm the storm. That's our hope as his people. But this is about the audience. These Gentiles, these people that the disciples were taught to hate, they're receiving from Jesus as much as the Jews have, have and did. This has served to even simplify who the gospel is for. In their minds, they thought it was only for the Jews, but Jesus is trying to reveal to them it's for everyone. It's much like the Pharisee that came to Jesus in Luke 10 with a question about salvation and eternal life. And when Jesus responds with the first and greatest commandment, the second commandment being love your neighbor yourself, he asks, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives this parable, this parable of a Jew who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And he's found nearly dead along a roadside. And three people pass him up like a joke as someone walks into a bar. It says that a priest comes by, a Levite, who is the line for the high priest, and then a Samaritan. And it says that it was the Samaritan, which in their minds was worse than a Gentile, because this is a half-Jew, a half-breed. It's not the priest or even the one in line to be high priests that care for him. They both pass him up. These are the religious leaders that they have been taught as Jews to trust and place their faith in. The one that they're supposed to hate, the one that they have been taught that God hates and has rejected is the Samaritan. And it's the Samaritan who in fact stops, cares and pays attention for, to this man's needs. He cares for him and puts him in shelter and even pays for this man's recovery personally. Jesus asked the Pharisee after this parable, which of these men was a neighbor to the abused? The Pharisee answers the one who had mercy on him. And his response is laughable because he's unable due to his own prejudices to even say out loud the Samaritan. The point to be made here doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus gives abundantly in this display that he provides richly for this crowd. That is true. It's that these Gentiles have forgone eating for three days in this desolate place. And they did so as to simply not miss a moment with him. They are worshiping and their sacrifice evokes his compassion. The scriptures are clearly stating here that they ate till they were satisfied. And just like before in the feeding of the Jews, which happened months before now, the disciples take up leftovers. So there was abundance, but even more dramatically than when he fed the Jews, the 5,000 from before, in feeding the Gentiles, this is summer or early fall, a time of harvest, months after that last feeding. 
And so the grass on the ground isn't green and lush any longer like in springtime, but rather it's been scorched from the sun, revealing how barren this place actually is, making this miraculous show of power even more the great. Like the robber in the story of the Good Samaritan, this is about meeting personal need and saving these people from death. These people counted because we only counted men in this time. Women and children were not accounted. It says we're 4,000. If they don't eat, they'll die. And they're going to eat only if Jesus provides for them by miraculous provision. The beauty of this is that the, the number of people here is probably well over 10,000, maybe more like 12,000, 15,000 people. Before, when he fed the Jews, it was more like 20,000, 25,000. And when the Jews were fed, they responded in desperation, ready to make him their king. They were ready to thrust him into rule over the Romans and to champion him into Jerusalem. The disciples that are present right here in this moment as he feeds the 12,000 some odd Gentiles, they were included. They wanted to do the same thing because the Jews had found their king. Much like God provided manna from heaven for their ancestors, Jesus, their new king, will provide them food to the point where they don't even have to work for food again. They don't have to provide that for themselves. But in this moment, the disciples are witnessing something. These people are Gentiles. His disciples must be thinking amongst themselves, why is he providing food for them? They're dogs. They're not important. Let them die. How can he be both their king and simultaneously our king? And the next point is this. It's because circumstance has led them to reevaluate and even reestablish priority. For the disciple, this comes in the form of rethinking their own prejudices, their own heritage, and who the gospel is for. Jesus here simplifies it all, much like who was your neighbor to the Pharisee in the Good Samaritan parable? He just answers. He brought them away into a Gentile region to minister to Gentiles for the past two, three months by the time we get to this picture, to show them the kingdom is for all people. And that he's about to entrust these disciples with that kingdom. That they must be ready to minister to all people. They had to be retrained and their prejudice had to be cast away. Their preferences had to go away. They had to live with way less prejudice because this prejudice was weighing down their ability to be effective. And they had to leave that behind as much as they left everything and everyone to follow him in the first place. Maybe during this quarantine... The Lord has led you to reevaluate what's truly important. Maybe you've had preferences before. <laughs> and maybe those preferences are more reflecting of want versus necessity. In a common culture like ours where abundance is the norm, one that is comfortable, one with choices, one with first world problems, that can easily become the case. But what do you do when your choices are taken away? What do you do when you no longer have modern conveniences? Maybe even your comfortable patterns that you're used to are gone. When your job goes away, don't you then begin to rethink your priorities? Aren't you then at that moment forced to live with need instead of want? I mean, it's like the Tupperware holding all your stuff and everything else has to go. Don't you breathe a bit of relief when you're not suffocated by the weight and worry of that stuff any longer? As you also wrestle with what's truly important and what can be left behind. Maybe, maybe you've taken on such a sigh of relief that you've come to love this experience and relieved in it even. 
as it's proven to expose how much time you weren't spending before with those who really matter and how much you weren't investing the gospel in your own family, the place that is your first priority and responsibility. In fact, Scripture says that your very proven ground for ministry is your home. Maybe you have a lot of people that count on you, a multitude, a mass even. (laughs) Have you realized that your first expectation is to minister to your immediate family and Right here, Jesus is showing as he ministers to his family, his 12, his most intimate, and he's revealing to them what's most important, and he's showing them what he expects of them as they go in to minister to the masses. This is not to take away from the fact that God maybe has given you a lot of responsibility and a lot of people count on you, but it is to say this, that maybe you need to stop and think about the fact that God actually cares more about just sitting with you than He does you ministering to millions. Maybe He just wants to meet your personal needs right now today like He did these Gentiles along this mountainside in this barren region. Because if He didn't come through, they were going to die. And maybe right now, the most important thing for you leading others is to know that He cares deeply about you personally. (laughs) This may be simple. It may seem simple to you, but that's the literal point. We have a tendency to complicate it all so much. We try to to complicate it with this earning uh, concept, like this this earning uh, culture that we have. We earn everything, and then we try to apply that to Jesus, and we try to earn His favor too. And we try to earn so much stuff, but the reality is God has been constantly stripping away the stuff and we can't earn what we already have. We have His unconditional love. We've begun chasing comfort more than we do Jesus, derailing and degrading our very trust of Him and the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. So maybe today (laughs) we need to rethink some things. For the Gentile, that forced them to think about the urgency of their time and capitalizing on this very moment with Jesus. Maybe, maybe as a follower of Jesus, we need to reorganize our thoughts as well. Maybe we need to evaluate how enamored with Jesus we are and ask, man, am I so enamored with Jesus that my next meal can wait because I'm anticipating what Jesus will do or say next, and that cannot wait? Again, today's message is not about condemning stuff. It's about condemning the worship of stuff. It's about simplicity and it's about a heart check. Who and what actually has your heart, my heart? Jesus sought to relieve his disciples of consumeristic comforts. And these men literally had nothing. They were poor. They were uneducated. They were Hebrew school washouts. They were the least. And Jesus called them to cut tie with whatever they did have so that he could leave them in charge over the entire launch of the New Testament church. We often ascribe these men as these uh, giants of the faith, namely because of their apostolic accomplishments in life, because we're reading about them after the fact. But let's consider what Jesus did with people who had nothing. And what he still called them away from. What, what could he do with a people that were completely submitted to him, but also well-resourced like we are? What if we just decided to trust Jesus and live on less, gifting those who truly need out of our abundance? Jesus admonished the poor widow in Luke 21 because she threw all that she had into the offering. 
before him. In fact, he said of her, this poor widow has put in more than all the others that you see here today, the rich. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on because she trusted me alone. What if that were our goal today? What if we trusted Jesus so much that the, all the abundant resources that he has entrusted him, we just used it to leverage the kingdom and advance his gospel? That we became so enamored with Jesus that the Gentiles were on this day in this scripture that we seek to please Jesus having a heart like the woman that threw everything in and we'd simply withhold nothing from him. What if God could capture us and captivate our attention that it led us to live simply after him instead of everything else? What if God could do that in our heart today and what would the church begin to look like and what would the world around the church begin to look like if the church just began to live simply let me pray father today we love you and we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for this teaching in the scriptures this example of how we are to put aside all else and cut ties with our old life to follow you into a new life a new life where you richly and abundantly provide for the people that you love, your children. But God, you are never going to miss our basic need. May, may we trust that you're not a liar and that you will meet every need that we have and you're never going to make us go and want. May we reevaluate our priorities and God place you and your provision for us as primary and let us just share that which you've entrusted us with the rest of the world richly and as generously as you have with us. Today, I pray that you would capture our heart, captivate us, help us to become enamored with you, help us to fall in love with our first love all over again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're moving to a time of response, and I want to say before we do that the point of a sermon is not just information. The point of a sermon through time and tradition has always been about action. So that's why we come to a time of response. And today you can respond of one of three ways. One, today maybe you need to take an emotional inventory in this time of response. I need you to ask yourself how much of the anxiety that you have is fueled by your own comfort, personal want more than it is need. Maybe today you need to confess your heart to, in prayer to him and Ask him to come in and clean this house a bit. Ask him to reveal those barriers that exist between you and him today and who you are today and who he's calling you to become. Maybe today you just need to trust him and today fall at his feet and help him, allow him to meet your own personal need. Maybe secondly, you're like the disciples that took nothing and like the widow who gave all, maybe in response to Jesus' day, in remembrance of his sacrifice, you can choose to live simply as a rhythm. Let this become a regular thing in your life to clear out the clutter physically. Maybe today you need to take physical inventory and ask, what can go? Because it just isn't necessary for me to hold on to it any longer. I want to cut ties with the old and trust the new life I have in him. Or thirdly, maybe you're listening and says, you just want to talk further. Maybe today you've heard this and you just want to talk further about what you've heard about Jesus or maybe you just need prayer for something today. Will you email us at prayeratthefellowship.cc? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be able to get in contact with you. We'd love the opportunity to minister to you and share with you the unconditional love of Jesus and why we've become so enamored with who he is. Today we want the very best for you and as we respond, as the band comes back, we just ask that if one or in all these ways you respond 
to him. He's calling us to live simply. Church, let's live simply.